You are listening to the sermon stream of the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com sermons. Good morning. Good to see you all today. Isn't the most lovely of weather, but it's still a lovely Lord's Day. If you would be turning to the Gospel of John, we're going to take our reading from there this morning and begin what we hope to be a series of studies through this gospel. Let's begin reading in verse 35. We'll read down to verse 46. John 1, 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You'll be called Cephas, which means Peter, and we know means rock. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. This come and see first given by Jesus, and then given by Nathaniel. I do believe these are the first time or the first record of anyone quoting the words of Jesus. Come and see. We see this is something John sets out early in his gospel. Anytime we see repeated words, repeated phrases, particularly something like this at this early stage, I think it is a key for us, and John is telling us something. So yes, these people actually did say these things. These are historical records, uh, but of all the things that they said in their conversation, I think John picked out the one that helps us the most. And basically, this will be our, this uh, double, uh, two-fold invitation to come and see is going to be our invitation to go through the gospel and see Jesus. And so we're going to see Jesus as we go through the gospel of John. So I'm going to invite you to do what John invites his readers to do here through the words of Jesus and Nathaniel, come along and see. Now, when it comes to the gospel of John, we know that it is quite a different gospel than the other three. We have four gospels in all. Of course, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John tells us specifically what it is that he's doing. John is directly Uh, telling you these things so that you might believe. And John is very much the gospel. 
of belief. Not that the others are against it or contrary to it. It's just not the overriding main theme. As a matter of fact, those other Gospels, uh, they are so closely tied together in their outlook, in their outline, in their, in their approach, that we often call them the synoptic Gospels. Uh, we call them uh, the, the seeing together uh, Gospels. Uh, John uh, is marching to his own drummer. Uh, John tells us of a number of things that are not in any of the other Gospels. Now, he tells us, and depending on how you break it up, there's about 240 incidences in the Gospels. And when I say incidences, I mean like the raising of Lazarus. That's an incident. The raising of Jairus' daughter. Jesus preaching in Galilee. Jesus going to the hometown synagogue of Nazareth. That, that kind of level. We end up with about 240 different incidences in Jesus' life recorded for us in the Gospels. It is almost never that the uh, other three Gospels are the only one that record a thing. Happens from time to time, It's but it's not common at all. In John, it's quite common, and most of the time that John does one of those, which about 25 uh, uh, of the incidences, so 10% of the incidences, are John's alone, but John records the incidents at length. So as I say, the, the raising of Lazarus, that's one incident, but what is it? It's 55, 60 verses. The discourse of Jesus about the high priest, or what we call his high priestly prayer, uh, that uh, at the Last Supper, the washing of the disciples' feet, uh, etc. Uh, the long story of the man born blind in John 9. Uh, the witness of sermon, John 5. Uh, when John tells us a unique incident, he tells us that at length. So he's about 10% of the unique incidences, or 10% of the total incidences are, are uniquely his, but almost half the verses we read in John are not in other Gospels. Now, where they do intersect, they intersect perfectly and completely. And so it's, it's, he's not contrary to the other Gospels in any way, but he is unique in his giving of the things of the Gospel. John is just very different. Now, at the same time, when we say the others are synoptic, which means seeing together, uh, that doesn't mean they're just three copies of the same thing. Uh, each of the other Gospels have very unique characteristics, which we do well to recognize and understand in the scope of the book. For instance, as I told you recently, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, if you look at that as the 40th book of the Old Testament, I, I think that's a helpful way to view that book. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew is written to and for a Jewish audience, fully explaining that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah. 25 or so direct quotes from the Old Testament, thus it happened uh, to fulfill uh, the words of the prophet so-and-so. Or the very beginning of Matthew, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, of Na- Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, and then uh, these, these quotes of direct fulfillment. Uh, so Matthew, uh, the gospel to the, all these Jews around the world who'd heard about Jesus, and some of them are maybe wondering about him or maybe some of them starting to believe in him. How, though, can we, how can we fully expect, accept that he's the Messiah? Matthew gives you that answer, the law, the tutor, the schoolmaster bringing to Christ. Or in Mark, a direct and active account of the Son of God. Mark's much shorter. If you ever need a, a uh, you want short devotional reading, read Mark. There's almost nothing in there that's uh, the, the perplexing things of Jesus, the, the paradoxes of Jesus, the, the difficult things of Jesus. 
Mark mostly doesn't deal with them. He deals with the plain facts plainly and quickly. And so he's by, he's by far the shortest gospel, uh, just even the introduction, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So there you go. That's what we're about. We're going to prove that. We're going to prove that quickly. And then you can move on. Uh, the conclusion of Mark, the centurion at the uh, cross, surely this was the Son of God. And so it goes from there to there. And then Luke, uh, the longer, quite a bit longer, uh, Luke is just about as long as you could write a book of a single scroll in the ancient world. Take your maximum possible normal scroll where you don't have to, you know, have an extended edition and all the extra problems of that. That's how long Luke is. He fills up a full standard long scroll. And then he does it again with Acts in the history of the church. And so it, it, it's a different story. It's the perfect man in time and place, well set in history. It's the most incredible story, but it's credibly told in two volumes that are about as long as you can make them without special editions. So we have the other Gospels, and again, we call them synoptics because they're so close, but that doesn't quite always do them justice when we talk about their uniqueness. But John John really is uh, unique uh, in all, as John just tells us, this is why I'm writing. I'm writing so that you may know. In John 20, at the end of the book, and you know, if you're going to read a book, how many of us read to the last page or two to kind of see how this goes? We've all done that, right? We're going to, let's flip, you already know the ending, don't you? He gets rejected, he gets crucified, he raises again. We know the ending. So let's go ahead and look at the ending. John tells us, John tells us at the end what this is about. I'm not trying to prove he's the Messiah, although certainly John helps that cause. I'm not trying to give you just, just this real active account and, and direct account, although there is some directness to it. I'm not trying to set this, you know, the whole historical record and set everything in order like Luke, although actually John, because he tells us about the four Passovers, is the one who helps us set the timeline even better than the others in one regard. But John says in John 20, verse 30, this is what it's all about. Everything is for this purpose. There are many other signs that Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples. John only records seven. John records seven signs. Many others that Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Yeah, read those other three books, and you'll get a lot more. Uh, But these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name. So John has crafted a gospel to cause you to believe. We'll just state that clearly again. John has written and crafted this gospel by inspiration, choosing selectively which parts and things in the life of Jesus, because if you were with him every day for three years, how long a book could you write? He crafts this book and lets you know these things, which are most necessary and most helpful to help you to believe. So when we study the Gospel of John, that is what we're studying, and that also goes to somewhat of the why of it too, doesn't it? So we're going to do the who, what, where, whens, and the like. So let's talk about the when. We're not going to talk about the when very much. When was the Gospel of John written? Modern skeptics, modern unbelievers, theological progressives and other types, they will teach you many things about the Gospels and the other books in the New Testament written, being written long after the times purported to be in the Gospels. Anyone who has you uh, and teach, uh, says anything about uh, Bible books being written after the year 100 
or being written by several authors and edited together and the like, honestly, in that regard, in that part of their teaching, put it down, move on to something else. It's not worth your time. Uh, these uh, uh, documentary hypotheses, uh, the, the Q document from which uh, Mark wrote and then Luke borrowed some, I'll just leave it, you don't need it. From the earliest times in Christian history, everybody said John wrote this, and it's usually said that John wrote this as an old man, and he wrote this uh, around the year 90 to 95 A.D. Now, John, by every uh, tradition, and again, uh, in the church we call it tradition if we don't exactly have the written records, and we don't have any written records other than the Gospels and other than the inspired record from the first century, we don't have anything uh, of Christian writers until we get about the year 120 or so. Then we see a lot of it everywhere. And part of that is just because uh, there wasn't as many Christians in that very first century. And also, that was a long time ago. We don't have hardly nothing from anybody back then. But um, everybody from the earliest writing said John wrote this, uh, likely from Ephesus, and sometime in the, in the 90s A.D. It's also in the same general time frame. Uh, it's generally thought that the book of Revelation was written. So among the last books of the New Testament. I think there's some rec- there's some reason to believe, and uh, there in a growing uh, a minority opinion, which I hold to, that John was written much earlier than that, quite likely before the destruction of Jerusalem. I think an increasingly strong case can be made that nearly all of the New Testament was written before the destruction of Jerusalem. It's such a huge event, and it doesn't hardly get any mention. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's whole chapters predicting it. But nobody mentions its fulfillment. And so I, I think that has probably because it hadn't happened yet. It's sort of like, why isn't Paul's trial recorded in the book of Acts? Because we know the book of Acts ends just before Paul it goes to trial. It talks about him being in custody for trial. But in any case, uh, with, with John, there's some reason to believe this is written very early. There's a statement in John chapter 5, verse 2. It says, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. Uh, which in Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porticos. John refers his audience to a structure in Jerusalem, and he speaks as if it's still standing. Now, sometimes we do speak about the historical past as if it's present. We do that sometimes, and occasionally you can find that in the scriptures too. But John, the indication you'd get from reading John 5 is that Jerusalem and this structure is still there. After AD 70, that structure would not have been there. That structure was not there. So in any case, it's possible that John was written real early, uh, while uh, before, before Jerusalem was destroyed. And actually, the great majority of the Bible was written in the 60s A.D., late 50s, mid-60s uh, A.D. So John could have been written then, uh, but usually it's thought he, it was written late. I don't care which one of those two you pick. It really makes no difference as far as anything of truth or of application uh, to us now, uh, 2,000 years later. The only thing I think you have to not uh, accept is that John was written after the time of John. And most progressive scholars think that the books of the Bible were written after the lifetime of the people whose name is on them. Well, what does that say to the record of it? That's, you know, um, after you're gone, you can't write. And so if you believe uh, in the uh, record uh, as purported, you have to at least believe it's written in the lifetime of the author. So as long as you hold to that, I'm okay. So that's the who, or excuse me, that's the when, and that's the basic what. What about the who here? As we go through the gospel, 
of John. We're going to, as we did uh, here in chapter 1, and we might not have noticed it because we're early in the book, uh, but there are more disciples there than John mentions by name. And of course, anytime you've got a lot of people, like Jesus, you know, Jesus will spend most of his time uh, hauling around uh, with 12 folks. Are you going to mention everybody's name at once every, or every time? No. But early on, we already are going to have, we already had disciples. There were two disciples, and one was Andrew. Well, who was the other? Well, there's a good chance it was John. Uh, but, but through the early parts of the Gospel of John, we're going to have mentioned from time to time a, uh, uh, disciples uh, that are not mentioned. But uh, when we get to chapter 13, we're going to find one of the distinguishing characteristics of John and one of the most unique turns of phrase to the gospel, uh, and we'll find it five more times in the latter half of the gospel of John, is we're going to find the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, that is that is quite clearly our author. And so why is it that it's not named? Why is, why is it, you know, sort of anonymous? Not entirely anonymous, but, but sort of vaguely anonymous. Why is it sort of vaguely anonymous? Uh, there are some uh, who have said that this uh, beloved uh, idea, this connotation, or this, this word beloved, has connotations and cultural meaning that we don't get. That it meant something uh, then that maybe it just doesn't translate. And there are some things that just don't translate well linguistically or culturally. Uh, there are others who think that the uh, beloved part uh, emphasizes uh, how much uh, God's love and the, and the effect of Jesus uh, had on, on this person, uh, how transformed he was, and he became a new man such in Christ that he didn't even want to talk about his old man or even in this writing give his name. I suppose that's a possibility too. Uh, to me, uh, the biggest thing about uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved is every time this person is that designated that way, there's an emphasis on Jesus, not on that person. There's an emphasis on Jesus and not on that person. Uh, the first time we run across this, John 13, verse 21 uh, there Jesus said at the Last Supper, he said, one of you is going to betray me. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples began looking at each other at a loss as to know of whom he was speaking. So that's how thoroughly Judas had fooled all of them but Jesus. And so there was one who was reclining. This will be the one. There was one who was reclining on Jesus' bosom. So we know that they had that. And I would just find this weird Eating while kind of lying down. You know, I, I, I look, I, y'all know me, I like to eat. And I'm kind of like the green eggs and ham guy. I kind of like it everywhere you go. But I don't like eating lying down. I like, I like eating standing up. I like eating crouching down. I like eating sitting down. I like eating while I'm driving. I like eating while I'm resting. I like it, but I don't like eating lying down. But they're all there lying down. And so kind of a strange thing for us. But as they're saying, as they are there, and they're that clo- they're so close to one another, and so they're not all spread out across the room. They're kind of piled in on top of one another to some degree. There's one of them that's sort of uh, right there next to Jesus, and he he's in front of Jesus. Jesus is behind him, not not completely unlike, not quite, but not completely unlike, kind of a, a spooning position. 
And, 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 and Peter gestures to him and says to, to him, hey, ask him who he's talking about. And John Ray refers to himself as the one who was reclined on Jesus' breast, that famous phrase. So he's, recl- he, he's, he's leaning back to talk to Jesus because Jesus is behind him. So he's kind of turned back and probably looking over this shoulder, maybe over this shoulder. But he's, he, his head is back up against Jesus' his chest as they're lying there on the floor eating. Now, again, I just, to me, that's kind of weird, but that's how they did things. And the one who was there closest to Jesus, the one who's there who can, when he leans back a little bit to talk to the guy behind him, which is Jesus, who puts his head on his chest, that's the disciple whom Jesus loves. And I got to say, you know, if you want to be close to Jesus, that's kind of the prime position, isn't it? And he's the one who's closest to Jesus. And so that's where the first time it comes up, the disciple whom Jesus loves. And Peter says, hey, hey, ask him what he's talking about. And then uh, there's four more times it comes up when they go to the John, well, the, 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 the disciple whom Jesus loves goes to the place where Jesus is being tried. He gets in the door and Peter gets stuck at the gate and Peter ends up out there with the servants. And what happens? Peter ends up denying Jesus. And then also at the cross, uh, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved appears to be the only apostle who witnessed the crucifixion. And Jesus tells that disciple, care for my mother. And then in John 21, he's the one who recognizes the resurrected Jesus before the others. And he tells Peter, hey, isn't that the Lord? And then Peter throws himself off the boat to swim to shore real fast. And then uh, when Peter is, is restored and asked to feed my sheep three different times, and he gets very embarrassed about that and kind of being called out, um, uh, Jesus tells Peter, uh, when you're old, you're going to be bound up and carried where you don't want to go. And then uh, Peter says, hey, what about this guy, the disciple whom Jesus loves? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus says, it doesn't matter. What, what if I wanted to stay till I come? What is that to you? You follow me. So every time, well, sorry, four of the five times, Four of the five times that the disciple whom Jesus loves, that turn of phrase is used, Peter's there, four of the five. And I got to say, in all four of the five, Peter doesn't come off real well, right? Whatever else the Gospels were about, the Gospels are not about making the apostles look good. Now, as the authors of the the Gospels, if they're going to write them, and they're going to write them like most humans write, how are they going to make themselves look? Now, I would imagine in the next year, we're going to see some books about the Trump administration. And we're going to have some insider views of some of the Trump administrations. And the people, I don't know who's going to write what books on what topics in regard to this, but there's one thing I'm going to predict. That the authors of these tell-all books about what happened in the Trump administration, how do you think they're going to come off looking in their books? They're going to come off good. And they're going to come off as justifiable or their justifications are given for why, why they did what they did. And who is going to look bad? Everybody else. And the more they want to sell the other, the more they want to sell books, what are they going to say about the president or other notable people in the administration? Oh, they were really bad, right? So the authors of these books, they're going to be the ones that come off looking good. And the subjects of these books, they're going to become off looking bad. And it's not just the Trump administration. When the Biden administration is over, what's going to happen with the book publishers? They'll be the same books. And when the Obama administration, when the Bush administration, when the Reagan administration, etc., when all those are over, what happened with the books? 
So the authors write these books partly to tell the story, but also partly to do what? To make themselves look good. They always do. In the Gospels, is there even the slightest hint of that? There just isn't the slightest hint of that. All right, so I think in order that that didn't happen, might be one of the reasons why John doesn't refer to his own name. Now, it really isn't a great mystery as to who this is. It, 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 was, it was never a mystery in the church. Uh, it was never a mystery if we compare the uh, Gospels to the other Gospels. For instance, in John 21, it mentions several disciples who were there when Jesus, this is when they had the, uh, the, the fish, the, the charcoal fish uh, for breakfast after the resurrection. And, and Peter was restored. In the boat was Simon Peter, Thomas the twin, Thomas Didymus, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, so James and John, and two other disciples. So if I count right, we got seven disciples in a boat, and we got most of them named. There's two that are not named at all, and the two sons of Zebedee are James and John. And then uh, if we count who's there at the rest of the things that go on, um, it's obvious that, that uh, the son of Zebedee, John, is the one uh, who ends up having that conversation with Jesus and with Peter. Uh, there was, you know, uh, James and John and Peter were the ones who were closest to Jesus. They were with him in the garden. They were with him at the Mount of Transfiguration. They were the only ones in the room when Jairus' daughter uh, was healed. And so uh, that conversation that goes on about one of them living for a long time uh, has to end up being Peter or John. Or excuse me, uh, not Peter, has to be either James or John. And of course, James is the first apostle to die. And then there's a legend goes around that this apostle is not going to die. Well, who's the one that lived a long, long time? Is John. So it's not really a deep mystery. It never has been a deep mystery. I think it's interesting that the fact that the name is not given, it leaves us some room. It leaves us some room. And, and let, me, let me ask you this for a second, if this is maybe not possible. John, I think, has crafted this Asking us to, in the words of Jesus, in the words of Nathaniel from the first chapter, come and see and follow along. I think he's asking us, as it were, as the reader, to put ourselves in this journey. To picture ourselves at these things. To walk along in the footsteps of Jesus through these histories. And then, as we talk about the story of Jesus, is there a place for us? Do we fit in here somewhere? Can can we consider ourselves by the grace we've been given? Can we consider ourselves by the instruction uh, 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 here to become one of his followers, to accept that, to to become one of his, the children of God? And and can, can we picture ourselves as blessed directly of God? I think we can. I think maybe there's some room here that's left for us. If we just had to, this was Peter, this was James, this was John, then... I, I don't know that it would, be, it would accomplish the same thing. I think this may be done to leave some room for us to think about ourselves as a part of this. That this is something that concerns you and me. Now, now, no, I mean it's not. It's not a build your own adventure where we, you know, we get to be in it and and, and literally be there. But in this, as a literary device to help us picture ourselves there and to respond as these things happen, uh, and, and we see the response of the apostles or we see the response of, 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 of the healed, or we see the response of various people, uh, what would we respond? How would we do? And we, we put ourselves uh, in, in, in this. And I think this, uh, 
this, being uh, semi-anonymous like this allows some room for that kind of thinking and that kind of an exercise. Now, if that does seem a little too squishy for you, and maybe for some it does, uh, I have to say there is one other theory as to why uh, he's not directly named, and that is that John may have been written at a time when there's still persecution of the Jews against the Christians, and being semi-anonymous like this was a protection. Now, do you want to sign your name to the incriminating documents? You know, we know in the Gospel of John it's recorded that after Lazarus was healed, what did the Jews want to do with Lazarus? They wanted to kill him too because he was causing people to believe in Jesus just by his very presence. And might it be that here this, uh, this apostle so close and so long associated with Jesus at the time of this writing, might he have been in danger uh, with putting his name on this document? Maybe. And so now did the Christians all know who it was? Sure. But just because we all know who it is, that's a different legal thing than actually having signed your name to it, isn't it? So that's a possibility. In any case, the disciple whom Jesus loved. We're really sure it's John. And we'll move on. Lastly, for today, I want us to understand that this book is a guided tour of belief. We had, and we just sang the song that attests to the same truth, but we have to start... Uh, after this wonderful prologue, which will be a lesson by itself. But after this wonderful prologue, we have John the Baptist saying to the whole world, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's right from the outset. And then we see through the book how Jesus is that. And then we have these disciples who come. And Jesus says to them, Hey, come and see. And and I, I used to think that was just like the world's most sad sack question. When the disciples run up and Jesus said, what do you want? And they go, oh, where are you staying? What do you mean where am I staying? Like, who are you? What are you teaching? Why are you doing this? Did God send you? That, that to me would be appropriate questions. But the, but, the, but the question, what do you want? Oh, where are you staying? What? Oh, but if it gives the occasion to say, come and see what's going on. Isn't that what we're invited to do in the book? In the book, we're invited to come and see. And then in the very next thing, as we read this morning, uh, to start, what is it then that one disciple says to another? He said, we found the Messiah. And what do you mean? Who? Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one the prophets talked about. Like Nazareth, really? And what does he say? Quoting Jesus. Yeah, come and see. And so from Jesus himself, recorded through John, and from one of Jesus' earliest disciples, uh, spoken to another one of the disciples, is this question, is this, uh, or is this invitation to us to, hey, come and see. What have you found? I found the Messiah. What do you mean? Hey, come and see, right? And so today we talk to people about Jesus. They go, what do you mean about Jesus? How do you know about Jesus? Well, come and study or come and see, come and read, uh, come Come and examine uh, these things about Jesus. Uh, Lord willing, next week we're going to talk about how John is going to guide this tour of belief to get us to the get us to belief at the end. Uh, now, I would ask you uh, for our study for next week. I'd ask you to do a homework assignment. I don't often ask you to do that, aside from love your neighbors uh, and be faithful. Now, I'd, I'd like you to have a homework assignment. I'd ask you, please, read John. 
just read it to read it. Um, if you read three chapters a day, you'll be ready by next week. Uh, it's about two hours, they, they, they estimate, uh, just to read all the way through. Uh, that's two TV dramas. Much better use of your time. That, that's one long movie. Uh, it, it is a drama. Uh, it is uh, uh, the most important story ever told, the greatest story ever told, as one said. Yeah, but just read through it and look. And so when we refer to things, because we are not going to be able to go verse by verse through the Gospel of John. I would love to do that. I don't really know if y'all want, you know, 120 lesson series. I don't know that you want that. I, I, I would work in some, in some ways it would work for me. But we're going to take this guided tour of belief. And like any guided tour, you know, we're all on the bus together. We're going to go by some things, fa- you know, faster than you want. It's like, hey, slow the bus down. I want to stop over here and look. Uh, you can go back and look, uh, maybe on your own time. But, uh, we're going to take this guided tour of belief and see how John structures it and, and see, uh, how through the seven miracles, uh, through the seven I am statements, uh, through the many, the five or six, uh, mentions of the hours coming, the hours not yet, the, the different hours. We're going to see how John guides us through the life of Christ to cause us to believe. So uh, today there's really uh, only one important question at, at that point. And is, it, uh, is it do you do you believe? Now we have this uh, in verse 14 of chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out that he was the one who said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. From his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I'd like for you please to read about that See the grace and truth in it and strengthen or, if necessary, first come to resolve to believe in Jesus. We're going to see just how important to the Gospel of John that this really is. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.